I would love to throw a great big party at the taxpayer's expense. And then whenever I felt like doing, well, whatever I wanted, I could just ignore the Constitution. That's what it must be like to be Barack Obama right now. The good news is, and not that we're watching only 1,460 days to go, it's January 21st, 2013. He's been shunned by commercial radio, unable to be bought and paid for by corporate America, and running on the fossil fuel of common sense. For those of us that choose to live dangerously in the radical middle, welcome to the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. that people are going to have to explain to me and I ask this every inauguration day so don't think that this is any different why it is that we have a great big party in Washington D.C. at the taxpayers expense it costs millions of dollars to throw this great big gala all for the purpose of swearing in the president and incidentally he wasn't even sworn in today today is not inauguration day technically that was yesterday by the letter of the Constitution of the United States, January 20th is when you do the swearing-in ceremony. And they did that already. So why are we doing this today? Well, what, just to just have a great big party? Just an excuse to have a, a huge bash at the taxpayer's expense? I wish that everybody that had a bad budget, that everybody that was in debt right now would just go out and, yeah, why not, just... Have a great big party. Go ahead. Sure. Oh, the cleanup alone must just cost a fortune. It's got to cost tens of thousands of dollars just to clean up the mess. All the security you have to have. Oh, man. I don't know. I don't get it. Anyway, welcome in. It's the Zip Code Famous Michael Graff Show on a Monday. Yes, it is Martin Luther King Day 2013. Contact information for the program, as always, Mike at KMGX.com. That is our email address. It is Mike at KMGX.com. Michael Groff Show, AOL Instant Messenger. Groff Show on Google Talk. Michael Groff on Twitter. And, of course, MichaelGroff.com for all your Michael Groff Show needs. You can leave your comments, questions, suggestions, feedback on this or any other podcast that we've done. You can always sign up, get email notifications every time we post a brand new episode of this show. And... The most important part, you can leave your generous donations, your contributions for this program. All can be done through the one and only michaelgraff.com. Man, so much has gone on in the last few days since our last show. Obviously, I want to get into the inauguration and the festivities that surrounded all of that and all of the speeches and the poems and all the hoopla that went on and 
I, I really don't want to talk about it that much, actually. But I do want to just touch on a little bit. We'll, we'll do that in just a minute. But I, I have to get into the 23 executive orders that the president issued last week. In the ever ongoing controversial gun control issue in this country, I guess we're no longer having the dialogue about it. I guess the the president and all this flowery language about let's have a dialogue, let's make sure that we get everything on board, let's get Congress on board with all of this, let's get it going. I guess all of that was just bunk. I guess it was just all crap. Because here we are, the president says, all right, well, I want these uh, measures passed, so I'm going to use executive order to put measures through. Executive order was never intended to be an end around to Article 7 and Article 8 of the Constitution. It was never intended to be an end around to the legislative branch. We are supposed to have, at least according to the civics classes I always took growing up and the government that I understood us to be, we have three co-equal branches of government. We have the legislative branch. They write the laws. They are the lawmakers. Then we have the executive branch. That would be the president of the United States and I guess to some degree the vice president. He counts as sort of both because he's, of course, the president of the Senate and he's the vice president of the United States. He steps in if the president is unable to fulfill his obligations, but he's sort of both. But I guess you would say he's the executive branch. And then you've got the judicial branch. That is all of our court systems across the country, specifically uh, when we're talking about government, the federal government, the highest court in the land, the Supreme Court. Now, they are all supposed to be checks and balances against one another. Lawmakers make the laws. The president signs said bill into law. And then the judicial branch determines whether or not that law is actually a good law, a fair law, and abides by the Constitution of the United States. It's simple, right? Well, no, because the president has decided I'm not going to bother with these other branches. I'm going to enact these laws myself. Now, of course, an executive order can be struck down by a judge. It can be turned away by the court system. And, you know, some states even feel that under the 10th Amendment, uh, they can pretty much ignore these executive orders. And there is going to be a lot of legal challenges to this. But we have here, these are the 23 executive orders uh, that the president came up with. And I want to go through all of these sort of one by one, just so you understand, because many of you maybe haven't heard all of them. You just heard that the president decided, all right, we're going to limit the um, the size of the um, magazines for every uh, firearm. We're going to eliminate assault weapons. And that's pretty much all you heard about it. And some of you probably were overjoyed with glee. I know on a lot of the liberal talk stations and a lot of the uh, talking heads, the pundits on the left uh, were out there. They were just singing Barack Obama's praises. And you know... I have no problem with laws that are passed through the normal channels and that are executed in the normal way. I sat here, I said, I see no other alternative. I know that we're going to have an assault weapons ban. I know that we're going to have a, a limit on magazine size, a limit on, on the sale and distribution of um, assault weapons. We're going to do some useful things as well, like um, increased background checks and all that kind of stuff. I mean, that's fine, all right? I, I was willing to accept that, except I want that done through the legal constitutional channels, not this semi-totalitarian end around to our legislative branch. So here are the 23 executive orders, and you'll notice that some of these aren't exactly related to assault weapons. Number one, 
issue a presidential memorandum to require federal agencies to make relevant data available to the federal background check system. Well, that means that um, all federal agencies need to take all background check information and just put it into a central database. All right. Two, address unnecessary legal barriers, particularly relating to the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act that may prevent states from making information available to the background check system. That would be the HIPAA Act, by the way, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. So what we're going to do is we're going to, uh, I guess this is basically an elimination of HIPAA. Essentially, if you go into your doctor's office now, well, we'll get into this more later. I, I just want to sort of go through these, but now things that you say, that doctor-patient confidentiality that we have always had in this country, that which you have always known to be your right to privacy in your doctor's office. Yeah, with this, that's pretty much now out the window. We'll get into that more in just a second. Three, improve initiatives for uh, improve incentives for states to share information with the background check system. That's funny. Improve incentives for states to share information with the background check system. When you're talking about the federal government and incentives, it's not an incentive. It's actually they're going to make disincentives for states to uh, not participate. So if you don't participate in this system, you'll probably be, um, well, you'll probably have some of your federal funding cut. Just like when we uh, enacted a federal drinking age of 21 years old. It's considered voluntary by the states. The states can have any drinking age that they want. But if it's not 21, you won't get federal highway funds. That's how the government extorts you. That's how they uh, engage in their racketeering. Well, you can do what you want, but don't expect any help from us if you do. Four, direct the attorney general to review categories of individuals prohibited from having a gun to make sure dangerous people are not slipping through the cracks. What that means is... We're going to review the categories of individuals prohibited from owning a gun. Well, that means redefining who should have one and who shouldn't. And I'm all for mentally ill people not having access to guns. That's fine. But when you use broad, vague language like reviewing the categories of individuals prohibited from having a gun, well, that doesn't necessarily just mean the mentally ill. That could be anybody. We could just start arbitrarily assigning parameters to certain classes or certain groups of people or certain classifications. Like have if you've ever seen a psychologist, maybe you shouldn't have a gun. Ever seen a counselor, maybe you shouldn't have a gun. If you've ever maybe committed a misdemeanor, you know, as it is now, if you've committed a felony, you don't, you're not uh, allowed to have access to a gun. And I guess I'm for that. But if we're going to start expanding those criteria, that's what I start to worry about. Five, propose rulemaking to give law enforcement the ability to run a full background check on an individual before returning a seized gun. So if your gun is stolen from you, for example, and it's used, maybe it's not even used in a crime, but maybe it's just recovered by the cops someplace. Well, now they're going to run a full background check on you to make sure that you should have it in the first place. Oh, that seems fair. 
6. Publish a letter from ATF to federally licensed gun dealers providing guidance on how to run background checks for private sellers. In other words, they're going to send out instructions, more detailed government instructions for how a licensed gun dealer is supposed to sell a gun. That's, that's useful. 7. Launch a national safe and responsible gun ownership campaign. All right. I mean, I'm fine with that. Eight, review safety standards for gun locks and, and gun safes. So we're going to have new standards for our gun locks and gun safes. And that's, again, another waste of time. Nine, issue a presidential memorandum to require federal law enforcement to trace guns recovered in criminal investigations, which sort of is uh, like uh, number six. If they find a gun while doing an investigation... Uh, they want to trace it all the way back to the source. They want to find out exactly who owned it. They want to find out every bit of information about that person. Hmm, seems completely unreasonable, but all right, continuing. 10, release a Department of Justice report analyzing information on lost and stolen guns and make, and make it widely available to law enforcement. All right, so anytime you report a gun lost or stolen, they want to make that information available to all law enforcement. Uh, all right. 11, nominate an ATF director. Fine. 12, provide law enforcement, first responders, and school officials with proper training for active shooter situations. Don't we already do that? Shouldn't law enforcement already know how to handle an active shooter situation? Aren't they trained on that all the time? That Again, that just seems like, all right, well, I, I want to make it look like I'm doing something here, so I'm going to issue this. This is something we already do. 13, maximize enforcement efforts to prevent gun violence and prosecute gun crime. So they want to make tougher enforcement on gun crimes. Well, I don't know if they're aware of this, but as it is right now, if you commit a crime, even a misdemeanor, and you have possession of a firearm, at least in the state of Arizona and in many other states, there is a mandatory sentence that's involved. For example, if you do like simple breaking and entering into a home, and you have a gun even in your car. It's not even on your person at the time you break and enter, but you have a gun in your car. It is a mandatory 12-year sentence. It automatically, that breaking and entering, that goes to a felony. And you face 12 years in prison in this state. I mean, I don't know how else, how, how much more severe they want to be. But okay, I understand you want to make gun crimes you want to just ramp it up and make it absolutely the the steepest penalty. And I get that to a point, but we already have very steep penalties across the country for gun crimes. 14, issue a presidential memorandum directing the Centers for Disease Control to research the causes and prevention of gun violence. Now, this is one that just made me scratch my head. We're going to turn the CDC over to analyzing gun prevention and gun violence and causes of gun violence? Shouldn't the Centers for Disease Control be worried about, I don't know, diseases? Shouldn't they be worried about flu vaccines and taking care of, of measures researching uh, issues like AIDS and Ebola and uh, H1N1 and all these other things? Shouldn't they be worried about actual diseases and actual, not not the not sociological problems, but rather biological issues. That's what I always thought the Centers for Disease Control was about. Taking care of diseases and researching diseases, not gun violence. Ridiculous. 15, direct the Attorney General to issue a report on the availability and most effective uh, way of 
new gun safety and technologies and challenge the private sector to develop innovative technology. So more safeties on firearms, more ways to make them safe. We already have safeties. We already have locks and all this other stuff. I don't understand what other safety protocols you can put onto a firearm. Are we going to start putting labels on it? Danger, gun. 16, clarify that the Affordable Care Act does not prohibit doctors asking their patients about guns in their homes. That's right. When you go to your doctor's office now, you have to understand that there is absolutely no federal law against your doctor asking you if you have a firearm. So let's say I go in and I have a cold, all right? Or I go in, I have the flu, sore throat, laryngitis, whatever I go into my doctor's office for. And I get in there and he sits me down and he goes, all right, um, that's how you feeling. How's everything going? Um, well, you know, I got a sore throat. All right, let me take a look. Hey, by the way, you have any firearms in your home? What? When I go to my doctor, the last thing I want is for him to ask me about firearms in my house. But here's the problem. Now, if we're going to start redefining who should own a gun as as prescribed by this particular set of executive orders. If I say to the doctor, well, I just think that's none of your business. I might be labeled a troublemaker. Maybe uh, I'm a little hostile on the issue. Or maybe he just writes it down as, oh yeah, he's got guns. He's a gun nut. Or what if I, yeah, I mean, if I say yes, then that information, because there's no more doctor-patient confidentiality by executive order, there's no more HIPAA, the doctor can turn around and he can turn that information over to the federal government. Really? So this is how we're going to combat the issue. No more. We're going to have our doctors asking us if we own guns. And there's no federal law that says they can't. Do you own any firearms? And you know, um, doctors can also um, instruct you on the proper storage and care for your firearms. Oh, well, that's good. That's what I want to do. When I go to my doctor, I really want to, well, make sure that you keep your ammo separate from your firearm and that you keep your gun stored in a secure location uh, with proper locks. Make sure you have those locks inspected. I'm here for a sore throat. Yeah, well, now you're yelling, sir. Well, yeah, I got this sore throat because I was yelling about this issue in the first place. I got into an argument. All right, number 17, release a letter to healthcare providers clarifying that no federal law prohibits them from reporting threats of violence to law enforcement authorities. Again, um, now we already sort of have this. If I go to a healthcare provider and I say, listen, I'm feeling suicidal, they may have somebody else come in the room. And if I say it again, you know, they'll ask, are you serious about that? I mean, are you really feeling suicidal? They could have you committed, like a 72-hour a commitment if you say that you're feeling suicidal. So we already sort of have something like that. But now if I, if I give any indication that I might feel a little bit violent. Man, on the way in, Doc, I, I drove in here. Man, this guy cut me off. Sometimes you just want to punch those people, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Okay, writing that down. 18, provide incentives for schools to hire school resource officers. Good. I actually agree with that. Cops at schools, fine. Absolutely. That could be passed by legislation, but the president feels, I'll just do it via executive order. Fine. 
19. Develop model emergency response plans for schools, houses, uh, places of worship, and institutions of higher education. Fine. You want to have uh, uh, emergency plans for these things? I mean, they should probably already have those if they don't, but if you want to institute that, I fully support that. That's fine. 20. Release a letter to state health officials clarifying the scope of mental health services that Medicare or that Medicaid plans must cover. Fine. 21. Finalize regulations clarifying essential health benefits and parity requirements within ACA exchanges. All right. Two. Commit to finalizing mental health parity regulations. So... We're going to redefine exactly what mental health issues are. Launch a national dialogue led by Secretaries Sebalius and Duncan on mental health. If it's going to be anything like this dialogue that we're having, that the president is having, that should be fun. Incidentally, in these executive orders, it should also be noted that the president, uh, that uh, it's in here that state laws are now superseded by these executive orders. Well, so uh, because of these measures, because of the limiting of the size of magazines and assault weapons in general, the state of Arizona today, uh, the our, our state house has already drafted a bill, I believe, what is this, HB 2219, I think? Let me see if I can find it here. Well, anyway, in this bill, uh, our legislators have decided, you know what, we're going to handle this ourselves. This is a state's rights issue. This is a 10th Amendment issue. And in this bill, they have made it a felony for any federal official to enforce these regulations. And furthermore, uh, they say that um, we are going to keep our current gun laws, our current ammunition laws and regulations and we are not going to adhere to these federal standards that's what's in this bill passed by our legis well it's proposed right now it's still uh it's still going through the house floor it has not passed yet but that is the latest measure from the arizona state house and other states are doing similar measures um this is going to cause a great big rift among the states between the states and the federal government. And if you think that this is the last you've heard about this, there are going to be numerous legal challenges. Those are already being put together by the National Rifle Association and by various states. I know uh, here in the state of Arizona, Governor Jan Brewer and our Attorney General Tom Horn, I know that they're already considering a legal challenge to all of this as well. So I think these executive orders, many of them may be overturned, delayed, changed, amended, whatever. And I think some states will just flat out ignore some of these executive acts. And this is the direct consequence of doing an end around to Congress. The states have decided they're going to invoke their 10th Amendment rights. They don't feel that the president has the power to do this. So they're going to say, all right, well, we just don't, since you're not using the constitutional method necessary to get this passed, we're going to invoke our 10th Amendment rights, the state's rights, and we're going to handle this ourselves. And if you try to challenge us on this, we're going to take you to court. We're going to have a, a big federal lawsuit about this. We're going to get into the melee and all this. And... Um, 
you know, you just decided not to use the normal, proper constitutional channels. So we have to do it ourselves. We have to take care of this. I don't like it when any president uses executive orders. Remember, the Bush administration did this crap also. This is far-reaching. We have seen presidents over the past 20 years step way out of bounds with their power. You know, there's always some controversy at the end of a presidential term when they use the, the pardon. I mean, that was always the thing, too. You know, every president on their way out the door issues a bunch of presidential pardons. And sometimes they're, they're controversial, but, you know, they do it at the end of their term because that way they don't really have to face the music about it. They just issue the pardon and then they're out. They're done. And, you know, sometimes that, that caused a stir. But now it's gone way beyond that. These executive orders and this, this privilege this is why people don't trust the government. And this is why people have such, um, I, I don't want to say disdain, but I, I guess it's bordering on disdain for the federal government. And people say, well, the federal government is us. We're a government of the people and by the people and for the people. Well, we were, but governments now apparently act counter to that. They go against the will of the people. Yeah, many people feel that we do need to have a, a conversation about this. And there's a lot of people that feel that we should even have restrictions on assault weapons. Fine. But there are people that are also very concerned about a president that just feels that whenever he wants, he can just issue an executive order. And if he doesn't feel the Congress is doing their job properly, well, he'll just do it himself. He'll just take it upon himself. That's not the government that we have. And that is not the government we've had for 240 years, almost. That is not it. That is totalitarian. And look, the people are clearly upset by it. There's no question. All right. I know some people are just out there. They're singing Obama's praises right now. They're, oh, man, this is great. I can't believe he just decided he's going to step up and do what needs to be done. Well, if I'm Congress right now, this is what I do. If I'm a representative in the House, I say, all right, you want to just make us irrelevant. Well, we're going to make you irrelevant, buddy, because the House of Representatives, according to Article 8 of the Constitution, they control the budget, all right? They have the purse strings, all right? They have the checkbook for the United States of America. So I would just say, all right, well, we're just not going to fund your executive orders. We're not going to give you any teeth behind it. We're not going to give you any means to fund this these proposals because you decided that you were going to just go around us. That's how we'll handle it. That's the checks and balances of this country. I would be pissed off. I'd say, all right, well, th there you go. No funding for you. No money. We need to cut our budget anyway. This would be a great start. We just won't fund your ridiculous measure. So uh, that's how I would handle it if I was in. And you know what? There are people in Congress that are talking about that right now. People in the House of Representatives. And even Democrats are a little bit upset by the fact that the president, at least some Democrats, those that actually understand uh, more than just partisan politics, some Democrats are even upset that the, that the Constitution has been subverted for these executive orders. They might agree with the ultimate end, but they don't agree with the means. And uh, the ends do not justify the means, even though Barack Obama pretty much came out and said exactly that, that the ends do justify the means. No, they don't. Isn't that always what governments try to tell you also? The ends justify the means. Hey, ultimate, it's for the greater good, man. Very dangerous precedent. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're sitting on right now. This is something that 
you should be concerned about. If if Congress passes it, hey, look, you didn't hear me complaining about the assault weapons ban from 1994. You didn't hear me complain about it. Well, mainly because I wasn't on the air. But even if I had been, you would not have heard me complain about it. Because that's Congress doing what Congress does, enacting legislation and going about it through the proper channels. I may disagree with the legislation, but I don't disagree with the execution of it, at least the process of it. This, I just have a problem with the process. It's wrong. It's dangerous. It's bad for this country. That's what I worry about. Also, we had the big inauguration festivities. There was a lot of poetry reading. A lot of hoopla, a lot of speeches given, including the one by the president. These inauguration festivities. Now, according to the Constitution, the president is sworn in on January 20th, which he was. That was a relatively small ceremony. But then yesterday, or today, I should say, almost yesterday, in Washington, D.C., um, they had the uh, a big party, a big shindig. Um, not nearly as big as it was back in 2009 for the inauguration. However, still, they had over half a million people show up. People were lining the streets to see the president go by. They saw the big speeches up on the many jumbotrons all over the place. They heard the speech. They saw the, uh, the ceremony, the swearing-in ceremony. And, um, oh, I should point out there were protesters there. However... Protesters were relegated to, this is funny, a free speech zone. <laughs> a free speech zone. Now, a free speech zone, I guess, is a, a specific area where you are allowed to have your protests and say whatever you want. But if you were right along the main parade route or the main um, sort of motorcade route for the president of the United States, you weren't allowed to be up there protesting. Wow. So I thought the entire country was a free speech zone. I always thought that. I, I thought that we always had the right to um, hold up a sign. And, but no, there's only a specific free speech zone when it comes to the inauguration of the president. The really weird part about all of this is that more people aren't talking about it. More people aren't seemingly interested in what it is our government's doing. When you talk about free speech zones at an inauguration certain places where only where people are allowed to express their opinion. That's a very bad thing. It's a very dangerous thing. Our forefathers right now, whatever you believe in, uh, are looking down at the situation or the memories are being desecrated or however you want to think about it. It is just a complete disappointment. It is We are completely divorced from the ideals of our forefathers. And that is just tragic to me. Uh, again, not that we're counting, but just 1,460 days to go. All right, I've got to take a break. Uh, we're a half hour into the show already. A lot of stuff still to come. More about David Swartz. If you thought the David Swartz thing was over with, it is not. There was a big memorial over the weekend. We'll talk about that. And what is still coming up with that situation? Um. What else? Uh, I have a lot. There's a lot of sports stuff that's going on. LeBron versus Kobe. That happened last week. The Los Angeles Lakers in a tailspin. It's wonderful. Super Bowl 48 is set in New Orleans. Ravens, 49ers. That's coming up. And, um, oh, Lance Armstrong had his big interview with uh, Oprah. 
And maybe I'll even talk about Manti Teo, although I'll try to avoid talking about that too. Talk about something that's been beaten to death. That horse, that horse, the poor, poor horse has been beaten to death, resurrected, and then beaten again. I'm tired of that story already. And we don't even have all the facts surrounding it. I'll get into it though. And we have the Michael Groff Show stupid news file. And I've got something cool to play for you as well. And a whole lot more still coming up. It's the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. Tonight on Fox News. I wonder what Jane Skinner's thinking about while she's reading this report. The deputy police chief says six officers were killed, including the district's top cock. Top cock after a cop after the vehicle they were riding in was sprayed with bullets. Three other officers were hurt in the attack. Uh, what? Cock. Talk. Cock. Just another media meltdown. And speaking of media meltdowns, you're listening to the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. Zip code famous Michael Graves show. Mike at KMGX.com, the email address, Michael Graves show, AOL Instant Messenger, Graves show on Google Talk, Michael Graves on Twitter, and for everything else related to this program, MichaelGraves.com, the place to be. If you thought the Aaron Swartz thing was over with, it's definitely not. Of course, Aaron Swartz, the guy that, at least for me, the biggest impact on my life is uh, he essentially created RSS. And part of the reason that our blog and our um, podcast is able to be delivered to people and podcasts and news feeds all over the world are able to be delivered is because of that technology, that innovation. And of course, he uh, created Reddit, which of course uh, everybody knows, uh, except for me until about a week or week and a half ago. Uh, nevertheless, um, well, I knew, listen, I had, heard about I had never been there all right I had no idea what that was about I had never gone to the site had no idea anything about it whatsoever you know I I don't know I just was one of those things I was ever really curious about but now um the legacy of this guy I mean it's it's amazing a, a lot of the things that he's done for the internet and of course he tragically killed himself everybody knows the story by now facing 35 years in prison for a quote crime a crime that wasn't even really a crime, but the U.S. Attorney's Office wanted malicious prosecution of this guy. They were going after him hardcore, seizing computers, making him out to be almost a, 
a hacker terrorist type because he made available what was already public information about the only thing that he did wrong. And I'm not going to go through the whole thing again, but he essentially violated the terms of service at, of MIT's computer system. That's it. He violated terms of service. He, he didn't break any laws, uh, at least not the spirit of any law. He didn't violate any hacker protocol or anything like that. Maybe what he did was a little inconsiderate, um, but nevertheless, he was facing not only 35 years in prison, but untold millions of dollars in fines. And I can understand how somebody with a history of depression such as he had facing the feds like that, feeling that there was no way out, he certainly felt that he had no other option but to take his own life. Very, very horrible story. Well, it's not over. Uh, there was a memorial for him over the weekend. Many people had many moving speeches. His girlfriend, uh, many of his colleagues, people that knew him throughout his life. And a lot of them felt uh, there was a, certainly a tone of sorrow and sadness. But uh, there was also a, a bit of an undertone of like people felt that they were cheated out of this guy's brilliance and that the feds to prosecute and to pursue him like this drove him over the edge. And people want their pound of flesh from the federal government after this, the U.S. Attorney's Office specifically. People feel that this was absolutely wrong. It was a horrible uh, prosecution, an unfair, unreasonable, malicious prosecution. As a result, uh, there is going to be a protest in Washington, D.C., this Friday for Aaron Swartz. And even though the feds, uh, very nice of them to drop the charges against Aaron, even though they did that, um, they look, people are, are want, they want heads. They want heads to roll. And they should, especially this Carmen Ortiz, who's one of the lead prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office, definitely needs to go whenever you pursue someone like this without even really uh, taking into consideration what actually took place. Everybody that knows anything about this story and that has followed it and researched into it. Look, when I first heard about it, all I saw was a basic news story that had very basic facts, didn't even get into a lot of the details. It just showed that he was facing uh, up to 35 years in jail for um, for fraud and hacking and all sorts of other trumped up erroneous charges and that's exactly what's going on here. And I think anybody that knows the story knows that this is completely wrong and complete BS. And that's why there's going to be a protest in Washington. And I don't know um, how many people are going to show up for it. I hope it's a lot. I certainly hope that uh, somebody that is a pioneer of the Internet like this guy, their memory lives on, their legacy lives on. And, you know, I am very much against hackers. I'm very much against malicious hacking and people that uh, d disturb um, someone else's experience in life through criminal activity online. All right. There is nothing worse than somebody that, you know, like an identity th thief or somebody that writes these malicious viruses People like that, yeah, I have no problem prosecuting them to the fullest extent of the law, locking them up and throwing away the key, all right? Certainly have advocated that. What Aaron did, this wasn't hacking, okay? This wasn't, uh, I don't know when, you know, when you tell people about this story, they go, oh, he's a hacker, we'll lock him up. He wasn't, though. 
You know, he wasn't a, um, and I know when we talk about this stuff, there are people that go, well, uh, there's a difference, Mike, between hackers and crackers and hackers. That's not a bad term, but I'm trying to talk to people on a realistic level here. All right, people aren't going to get down into all the lingo, okay? They hear the word hacker. They assume somebody that uses, gains unauthorized access into a system and it has malicious intent or does something malicious within that or writes a computer virus. These are all things that people consider hacking. I understand that, you know, hacking doesn't necessarily mean that. It can just mean a computer programmer, all right? I, I get it. I understand the difference myself, but let's just talk on terms that general people speak in, all right? Let's just bring it down to the normal level of conversation. He was not a criminal. And um, I, I certainly hope the protest goes well. And I just thought I'd pass that along to you that in Washington, D.C. this Friday, there will be a protest for Aaron Swartz. And there was um, Memorial over the weekend. And I believe it is up on YouTube as well. There was a live stream of it also. But if you want to watch that and just see some of the stuff and some of the legacy. And I think they even showed um, part of a, a speech that he gave. And, uh, you know, the more I read about him and the more I read stuff from him, I understand the guy was certainly very smart. Uh, a little bit scatterbrained perhaps at times, but that's the nature of a genius. really is. Um, you have a lot of thoughts. You want to get them all out there. Sometimes they just all fall out all over the place. They may not always be arranged precisely how you want them, but they're there. And um, you could clearly see that he was a smart guy and certainly a big loss. And uh, I had no idea of all the innovation that he did for the Internet and all the good work that he did. And uh, that's why... That's why I take time out of this show and uh, want to talk about it. And something a little bit different, a little bit of a different direction, although still kind of innovative and neat that I ran across. While doing show prep today, I happen to find, talk about people that have a lot of time on their hands. I don't know who would even think to do this. Somebody took R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion and turned the song from a minor scale song to a major scale song. So when songs are written, when you, when you compose a piece of music, minor scales tend to be notes and chords that are usually a bit more sad, somber, melancholy. They're used in, you know, some of the bumpers of this show, some of the more depressing bumpers. It's certainly in minor key, in minor scales. Well, somebody took uh, R.E.M.'s Losing My Religion, which is a minor scale song, and turned it into a major scale and I just thought this was, I thought this was kind of cool. Like the, when you first hear this, you're going to be like, Ugh, I don't, I don't like it at all. And you're going to think it's very awkward sounding, but I don't know. I've listened to it a few times now and I think this is really actually pretty neat. So here's a little bit of that. Trippy, isn't it? It's kind of weird.
hear this stuff, I always think, who has the idea in their head? I'm going to take a song and I'm going to convert it into a different scale completely, piece it together. I mean, this is the actual song. It's not a cover or anything. This is REM, but just in a different scale. it was pretty neat share it with you there's um there are other ones too might as well go through so somebody did the exact same thing with the doors riders on the storm now whenever we go out whenever the family goes out we always talk about music and inevitably it always leads into a conversation where uh, my mom's boyfriend charlie he does not like the doors. He's well, he especially doesn't like Riders on the Storm. And so now I'm going to have to play this for him. Here's uh here's a little bit of that. Let's see if I can bring this up here. Here we go. You always wonder just what goes into someone's head. Here we go. Riders on the Storm in major scale. Sounds happy and upbeat. Riders on the Storm. <laughs> Actually likes this song. I mean the original and uh, this. I like the major scaling too. It's it's like somebody decided to turn it almost into a '70s pop tune. Dark pop, but still a pop tune. But it just shows you how the scales make everything different. Major scale makes everything happier. Imagine being high. Listen to this right now. <laughs> You'd probably have a full-scale meltdown. All right, got to take a break anyway here. And when we get back, got a lot of other stuff still to get into. The stupid news file. Got. Uh, Sports stuff to talk about. Lance Armstrong had his big interview with Oprah. Will America forgive Lance Armstrong? Ooh, the big question. 
We'll get into that and more. It's the zip code famous Michael Groff Show. exciting because we were going to get the truth and we were going to get all this information you know all the stuff that we already knew Lance Armstrong was finally going to come clean you never know what kind of Oprah you're going to get in these interviews either is it going to be the prosecutorial Oprah is it going to be sincere Oprah serious Oprah because she has many faces for many places she is a woman of the people or as I like to refer to people like that a great big phony And that's exactly what uh, Oprah usually is. Now, in this case, she was just sort of asking a lot of questions. And I guess she had a hundred something questions that she wanted to get in there. She obviously didn't get to ask all of them of Lance. But of course, she asked if she if he ever uh, used performance enhancing drugs, if he ever did blood doping. She wanted simple yes or no answers. And he um, yeah, he admitted to it. He said that every single one of his Tour de France wins it was all, there was all uh, sophisticated blood doping and sophisticated performance enhancing drugs that were going on because, of course, he tested clean. He tested clean many, many times. But naturally, he wasn't. Blood doping is a very th- weird thing. And whatever, whatever testing that you have, there's always a way around it, it would seem. Major League Baseball has just decided they're going to implement HGH testing this year for the first time ever. And who would have actually thought that Major League Baseball would be leading the American sports revolution in testing? The sport that never tested for anything and denied there was any kind of problems is now leading the forefront. They're out there uh, now going into HGH, which no other sport probably dares touch. The NFL, if they ever did that, like 90% of the players would probably be thrown out of the league. Nevertheless, Lance Armstrong was uh, interviewed by the Sirius Oprah. Well, you never know because Oprah has a, you know, whenever she interviews um, like uh, a white person, whenever she has them on, she she always uh, does the white people's Oprah because that's who she's trying to appeal to when she has the white people on. When she has the black people on, when she has like Will Smith or, you know, Maya Angelou or whatever. Oh, girl, look who's here. It's always, it always gets down to that sort of thing. Or whenever she has a female on, she's different. She had Barbara Streisand that's, that one time. Barbara's here! But then whenever it's somebody, you know, like a male, and it's a serious interview. 
we're going to be talking to Lance Armstrong. We just want to ask him a few questions. I want to get to the bottom of some of this stuff. Now, Lance, I want simple yes or no's. We got the very angry Oprah the one time. The guy that wrote that book and scammed Oprah. The whole thing that turned out not to be true at all and tried to portray himself as something completely different. Then they found out the truth about him and totally scammed her. And then he came back on the show and she got all prosecutorial and very serious. But this was the, the serious interview style of Oprah. And it would have been a compelling interview, but for the fact that we already knew that Lance Armstrong was a big cheater and a fraud. And that's the part that disappoints everybody about him. He had such a compelling story. Even Oprah was like, well, you know, you had a great story and you were, you were this great hero and why'd you do it and why? And as uh, Rick Riley points out from ESPN, Lance Armstrong didn't seem to be apologetic. He didn't really seem to be, um, certainly didn't seem very sincere. Uh, Rick Riley said that he was cold, calculated, and callous about the whole thing. He seemed very detached from his emotions. Certainly not somebody that was contrite about what he had done. Certainly not somebody that was at all remorseful for having cheated for so many years and scammed, pulled one over on the entire world with his story. And having seen what I saw of the, of the interview, now I didn't see the whole thing, but I saw a good 10 minutes of it or so, kind of in montage form. And it definitely, that's kind of the impression I got of this guy also. He didn't seem at all to really care. And why should he? He's got, I've read here that he's worth well over $100 million. Some people even say he's worth several hundred million dollars, which I don't know if that's the case. But even at $100 million, he certainly turned a sham into quite an endeavor for himself. And I know a lot of people are going to be going after him. Um, everybody that's ever done an endorsement deal with him should, and some of them will pursue him. Certainly, um, the Olympics, the Olympic Committee has already stripped him of his bronze medal that he won in the 2000 Games in Australia. Uh, that's out. Not that it matters because he has the medal it's already written in the record books that he won and who cares because, you know, in his mind, hey man, I'm still a winner. I got one over. Sucks to be the person that came in fourth in that race, right? In that athletic endeavor. You came in fourth to Lance Armstrong. You probably feel that you got cheated and you did because the guy was a, a, a cheater. And, you know, people say, well, uh, cycling, uh, doping, and this kind of stuff is rampant. It's not like Lance Armstrong was the only person that cheated. Sure, he wasn't the only person that cheated. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't matter if everybody cheats on a test in a classroom. It still makes it wrong. It's not right. Well, you know, he wasn't the only one to do it. Okay, well, that's that's not a good justification. That doesn't make it okay, people. People that defend this, it's amazing the kind of logic that people have. Well, if everybody cheats or if the vast majority of people cheat in a sport, that somehow makes it okay. Just like in the steroid era in baseball. Well, there was a lot of people that did steroids in, in baseball, so I don't know why we're choosing to go after just Baroid Bonds and Sammy Sosa and Mark McGuire and Roger Clemens and that ilk when so many other people were doing it. Well, because those people are being considered for the Hall of Fame. 
Those are people that are being put. Why should someone be given a reward of the Hall of Fame? Why should somebody be inducted into baseball's most prestigious honor if they got there via cheating? Because all it says is, hey, they cheated and they got away with it. Well, a lot of other people in the sport did. Yeah, that doesn't make it okay. I love that, though. That line of thinking is always my favorite. Well, half or three quarters of them did it. And so they were still really good players anyway. And they would have been great without it. Maybe. Barry Bonds certainly was great without it. But, you know, the reason I hold him out is because he's the... He's the student that would have already gotten an A in the class, but he wanted to get the highest grade ever. Or he wanted to get a perfect score. So, of course, he cheated to get an A+. That's why I'd keep him out. Yeah, I would have put him in the Hall of Fame. I would have put him in the Hall of Fame before he ever took the juice, quite frankly. But uh, he took the juice. So, absolutely not. He doesn't get in. None of those people get in. And that's exactly how the baseball writers feel. And normally, I'm the first person to criticize the baseball writers. I think, generally speaking, there is nothing more sanctimonious than the average sports writer, sports columnist across the country. So many of them have this holier-than-thou, sanctimonious attitude. They believe themselves to be the elite. And they always have these opinions that are just so uh, righteous. Oh, we are such purists and... We're so righteous about our, we don't even like the wild card in baseball and they have all these crazy ideas. But in this particular case, I would agree with them. Um, at least when it came to um, the Royd people, I'd never let them in. Why? And you can say, well, they accomplished so much in the, in the sport. They were still better, even though they had a, a, an advantage. Well, all right, except we don't know that. So you're only speculating. You don't know what kind of injuries they recovered from a little bit faster. You don't know that extra little bit of bat speed or that extra little bit of uh, arm strength. Every little bit in a game of inches, every little tiny bit matters. And they'll say, well, you know, all those uh, people, uh, Babe Ruth and um, maybe not Babe Ruth, but uh, certainly Mickey Mantle and uh, Roger Maris and people that uh, back in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, they did uh, amphetamines. Well, we don't know who did amphetamines and who didn't, okay? Now we know who did roids and who didn't, okay? That's actually been established. Barry Bonds admitted it to a grand jury in 2003. He says he didn't know what he was taking, which of course is BS, but he still admitted to using it. So then why should we let him in? He admitted to violating federal law. He admitted to cheating the game of baseball and using performance-enhancing substances, which are banned in any sort of international competition. And while they weren't officially banned in baseball, they were against the law of the United States. Therefore, why should we let him in the, uh, the Hall of Fame? Lance Armstrong is the exact same thing. He's a cheater. He did break the laws of the sport. He broke the laws of the country. He did a lot of things. I don't know if blood doping is actually against the laws of the United States or, or any international law, but it certainly is a violation of the rules of the sport. It certainly is a means to get an advantage in a sport through uh, chemical engineering or otherwise manipulation. So, No. Nothing for you. Sorry. Sorry, Lance. No one forgives you. I know that there are polls out that some people actually do forgive the guy now that he's come forward, now that he's confessed to Oprah and uh, he's gone on the, the national circuit. 
I don't. Hope he gets sued. I hope he loses everything. That's what he deserves. Speaking of things you just want to root against, the Los Angeles Lakers lost again last night to the Toronto Raptors. At the beginning of the season, many of the pundits, myself included, had penciled in the Los Angeles Lakers and the Miami Heat in the NBA Finals. And while I do think Miami is going to the NBA Finals and they will travel to Los Angeles, it won't be to play the Lakers. That's for sure. Yeah, I think the Clippers have a very legit chance of going to the Finals. Never thought I'd say that. Maybe the Mayans were right. They were just a year off. The Clippers going to the NBA Finals. That could happen. The Lakers probably won't even make the playoffs at this point. Last week, the Lakers played the Heat. And two teams that are constructed very similarly, but are definitely going in completely different directions and have very different philosophies. First of all, the Heat beat the Lakers last Thursday, 99-90. to It was a very competitive game, or at least somewhat so, until the last five minutes when the Lakers do what they generally do in late-game situations, and that is miss shots, melt down, do what they do, and find ways to lose games, while the Miami Heat got a very big road victory. Now, the Heat certainly have not been playing great ball on the road this year, but I really have a feeling that it's a symptom of a long season, they know that they're going to be back in the NBA Finals. They can flip the switch and turn it on in the playoffs. The point is, the Lakers aren't even going to make the playoffs. And it was very clear watching those two, those two teams play, um, even though, like I said, similar construction, different outcomes. Chemistry is probably one of the most overused sports analogies, but I think it really applies here. The Lakers don't have it. The Heat do. It was very much exemplified in the post-game comments by the petulant baby himself, Kobe Bryant, who essentially threw his team under the bus. He said, I can't do it all myself. And I'm paraphrasing this part, but Kobe essentially told one of the reporters, I think from KLAC, he said, um, basically, my back's hurting from carrying this team. I think he's very, very tired of his teammates. I think maybe even Mike D'Antoni's wearing on him. The pressure is wearing on him. The fact that they're not winning is wearing on him. And he, while he has had a, a good season, of course, up there in tops in scoring in the NBA again. But, you know, this is just part of the, the team concept that Kobe Bryant doesn't buy into. And by contrast, LeBron James of the Miami Heat, um, Here's a guy that writes on Twitter all the time about how he is trying to distribute the ball. He wants his teammates to be better. He relies on his teammates. Yes, he has a lot of skill and a lot of talent himself, but he knows that he needs his teammates to win the championship. They did it last year because of that concept. LeBron James buys the team concept. Kobe Bryant does not. These two teams are built around three star athletes. Lakers are built around... Kobe, Dwight Howard, and Steve Nash. The Heat are built around LeBron James, Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh. That's how they've been built for the last couple of years. All right, they use that archetype. And sure, um, you have star play. You have Dwight Howard and, and Steve Nash and Kobe Bryant. How could that possibly go wrong? Because Kobe Bryant doesn't play well with others. The common denominator in all the Lakers drama that's gone on over the last 17 years that Kobe Bryant's been in the league all of that drama is centered around Kobe Bryant, whether it's Nick Van Exel or Rick Fox or, I don't know, Lamar Odom, Shaq, 
everybody that seems to have ever gone through there and people have criticized, they're not the problem. The problem is Kobe. Doesn't matter if he's wearing number 24 or number eight or whatever. It's still, he is the problem. All right. And um, the Lakers not making the playoffs. That kind of makes me happy, actually. Yeah, I like Mike D'Antoni. I think he's a, a really good guy. I think he's a good coach that has a, a fun system that he wants to work into the situation. But that team is a mess. Now, Paul Gasol is on the bench. He's not happy about it, although he's still playing fairly well. Look at those two teams. It's so contrasting. LeBron James uh, set a milestone. He's the fastest player to ever reach 20,000 points. He also, in the same game, passed the 5,000 assist plateau. And you you look at him and you look at these comparisons. Who's the next Michael Jordan? People say, well, Kobe Bryant, he's very close to Michael Jordan. LeBron James, very close to Michael Jordan. And if you ask me, the thing about Michael Jordan is, yes, he was a great scorer. And Kobe Bryant may be uh, just as prolific a scorer or nearly as prolific a scorer as Michael Jordan. And he may be a slightly better scorer than LeBron James. But James has a lot of things that Kobe does not. He buys the team concept, buys a lot, gets a lot of assists. Hell, all those years in Cleveland, he probably would have had more uh, more assists had guys like um, Daniel Marshall been able to hit some open shots. You know, uh, LeBron James makes players around him better. He is not one of these guys that says, all right, I'm taking over the game. That's it. Throws his teammates under the bus. He doesn't do that. Yeah, Michael Jordan got in other players' faces. Yeah, he he there many times he got in Scottie Pippen's face or or BJ Armstrong or other guys that he played with. Yeah, he that's that's what you do. And certainly there's a place for that, but it's not in the media. There are times where you need to step up and and you need to take over a game and you need to be a selfish player. That happens too. But for Kobe Bryant being a selfish player is that's his default setting. For guys like LeBron James and Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh and even Steve Nash, who plays with Kobe, those are not the kinds of things that those players are about. They're they're about the team, and that's what you need to be successful. And maybe that's what the Lakers are thinking. Well, we'll bring in Steve Nash. He's all about the team concept. He makes other players around him better, so he'll only help Kobe. And and maybe the two, you know, he'll rub off a little bit on Kobe, and that'll help this team. That'll propel this team. No, it doesn't work that way. Kobe has always been like this. This is how Kobe operates. Uh, I think it's great that that the Lakers are struggling like they are. Oh, and right now as I'm as we're sitting here talking and uh, doing this show, uh, the Lakers are losing to the Bulls. Looks like they're going to lose that game also. I think they're going to be what seven games under five hundred now for the season. Yeah, they're not going to make the playoffs. They're not even that much better than the Phoenix Suns, who fired their coach over the uh, over the last few days. Was that on Friday? They fired Alvin Gentry. That was a mercy firing. Always interesting when management tells you who to play and you're just trying to play the guys that you feel give you the best chance to win every night. And management saying, no, you need to work on these young players. You need to get Kendall Marshall some more playing time. Really? He sucks. He spent most of his time in the D-League. You're going to tell me that you want that guy to play more often? The Suns' management may not be saying directly 
12 and Gentry tank the season, but they wanted him to tank the season. That's really what they wanted him to do so that they could get a better draft pick. Yeah, they're never going to admit that. There's never been a general manager in the history of the NBA that's admitted to doing that, but it's very clear that there have been times where teams have tried to tank the season. Obviously. And I think in, a, in an indirect way, that's what they were telling Alvin Gentry to do, and he wasn't going to buy it. And they brought him into the office and said, all right, well, then you're fired. And he said, well, that's fine because I quit. It was a mutual parting of ways. And Alvin Gentry had some very nice things to say about Robert Sarver, the, the owner of the Phoenix Suns, but he had nothing to say about Lon Babby. He had nothing to say about the general manager at all. He thanked Robert Sarver. He said nothing, which basically is giving the middle finger to the management. And, uh, you know, I applaud anybody that gives middle fingers to management because that's really what you're, you're supposed to do, especially when you're in an unwinnable situation like Alvin Gentry. Don't worry. He'll be getting another job very soon because he's a good coach. He has a good attitude. He wants to uh, utilize that uh, up-tempo style of play. He's kind of a no-nonsense guy. But he's very good with the media. He's, he's another super nice guy. He'll definitely land on his feet somewhere else. No question. All right, and then there's the story that's been beaten to death, and I don't intend to beat it very much here, and that is the Manti Teo weirdness. Obviously, football player, if you haven't heard from Notre Dame, that had a, a non-existent girlfriend, apparently. Everybody knows the story, or many people do, about how Manti Teo, um, last year, early last year, his grandmother and the love of his life, this girlfriend of his, died of cancer. And they died within about six hours of each other. Well, the grandmother dying, that was a true story. Uh, the girlfriend, turns out that that was not true at all. She didn't even exist. Well, there was a person that existed that may have been talking to him and posing as a girlfriend or something to him. Uh, but uh, that was about the extent of it. She totally scammed him, at least according to Teow and according to the university, she completely scammed him. And that he was a part of an internet hoax, a prank, as it were, that went on for a long time and that he was unaware of. And there's so many weird questions. They had an online relationship, but it was one of these things where it was, um, you know, they'd talk on the phone a lot also. They'd talk for hours and she, uh, he would talk her to sleep and she was having uh, these treatments at the hospital, which of course, you can't have a cell phone in the hospital. They don't let you talk on the phone like that. Or even if it was a landline, they don't let you talk on the phone while you're having all that cancer treatment. And even if they did, there was a funeral. He never attended the funeral. And um, it's it's such a strange story. We don't have all the facts, and I'm just giving you a very general sort of summary of this thing. Um, nobody has ever actually met this girl, except for somebody from the Arizona Cardinals. A fullback from the Arizona Cardinals claims to have met her years ago in Samoa, which is impossible because she doesn't exist. It's a, it's a hoax. It's a scam. Either Manti Teo completely made up the whole thing, or... He, he found out that he got scammed and he, he claims that he knew he got scammed sometime in mid middle of the season and he didn't come forward with it for a while because he felt embarrassed and he didn't want to bring that shame to everybody else and he didn't know what to do and maybe he told the university 
then or maybe he waited till the day after Christmas because the official story is right after Christmas he told the university that uh, he was scammed and that this girl didn't exist and that there was no cancer girl and blah, blah, blah. And that whole story, the big false media story that was such this feel-good story about Manti Teo. Here he is in contention contention for the Heisman Trophy. And, um, well, now, uh, you know, oh, but but he, uh, he had the sad story of the girlfriend that died uh, from cancer and his grandmother dying and all this and... I'll feel sorry for him and give him the Heisman. He never, he didn't win it, by the way. But, but, you know, uh, certainly uh, it brought a, a lot of positive press to Notre Dame, and they were in contention for the national championship themselves. And uh, it was great, tragic story turned into a at least somewhat of a feel good thing. And it turns out it was all a lie. And and Notre Dame is backing him up because, well, they kind of have to. Otherwise, they're going to look really stupid. It is a strange story. We don't know the details. We'll figure it out. But who looks really stupid in this story is the media. You mean to tell me that there's this story about a cancer girl and supposedly the love of this guy's life and you don't do any investigation into it. You do all the fluff pieces and you do the interview with him. But not nobody thinks to do their homework and look up on this girl just to see Wow, man, let's, uh, where can we uh, help, where, where can we donate to help her family with the funeral or, or let's find out a little bit more about her. Let's do some pieces about her while she's still alive, all this other stuff. No, nobody thinks to do that. Not a single member of the media did their homework. They do investigations on everything else, but this one thing they didn't think to do their homework at all. The media looks really stupid. And now they're sitting there. Some of some people in the media are going, well, we always had suspicions about this, this story. Some of it seemed a little too good to be true. Oh, yeah, now you say that. And some guys in the media are like, yeah, well, we, we didn't do our homework. Uh, we, we probably should have looked into a little bit. But, you know, who would think to do that? I don't know. Anybody nowadays? Anytime you hear a story that sounds a little bit too good to be true, a little bit too convenient, you should always assume that it is, and you should investigate it. After all, isn't that what journalism is about? Isn't that what being a member of the media is supposed to be? So that's it. I'm not going to get into it any further. I'm not going to talk about who it was that could have punked him. I think it's this guy, one of the Tuiasasopo brothers, uh, punked him. Um, I, I don't know. We'll find out. It's one of the big stories that's gone on. Manti Teo, the non-existent girlfriend, the saga. People asking a lot of questions. Like, if you're, uh, if you're a superstar quarterback like that, and you, you can have anybody you want, and you're in an online relationship where you never even try to meet the girl, ever? You never try to meet? And, or maybe they met once at Stanford in 2009 before they ever had a relationship? Like, what's the deal? There's a lot of strange questions in this fiasco. I know I'd like to know the answers. I just think it's strange. All right. <laughs> Notre Dame looks really stupid in all of this, don't they? Never mind Manti Teo. I mean, if, if we're... We are either to believe that Manti Teo is the most naive human being on the planet or he's a great actor and a great scammer because he either pulled the wool over our eyes or he had the wool pulled over his eyes or a little bit of both. 
one of those scenarios. I, I find it very hard to believe that anybody could be that naive. Maybe. That's what univer the university claims that that's the case. Notre Dame. Nice job, guys. They're an Ivy League school, you know. So they say. All right, Mike at KMGX.com. That's our email address. It is Mike at KMGX.com. Michael Grav Show, AOL Instant Messenger. Grav Show on Google Talk. Michael Grav on Twitter. And for everything else that you could possibly want about me and this show, it's MichaelGrav.com. While you're there, check out the latest podcasts. Leave your comments, questions, suggestions, feedback. You can donate to this program. You can sign up for email notifications. Every time a brand new episode of this program is posted, you'll be in the know as long as you whitelist our site on your email system so that we don't go to the spam folder. So that's all over there at the one and only michaelgraf.com. Thank you so much for joining us. We will be back tomorrow. Another great show. And uh, I didn't even get to this bizarre stupid news story. I'll save this for tomorrow. Oh man, so much stuff. It's the Zip Code Famous Michael Graff Show. Good night, everybody.